Good morning, good morning. My name is Seth. I'm one of the pastors here on staff. I get to welcome you all and uh, walk you through the text this morning. Uh, We're in this series called Love Walked Among Us, and it's significant for a variety of reasons, but the big one is that our whole culture loves love. That's kind of to be taken for granted. Everyone's in favor of love. If you said, all in favor of love, raise your hand. Everyone's hand goes up. But we say, what does love look like? How does it feel? What is it? What isn't it? Um, We're trying to clarify that in this series, that the fact that everybody wants love, but the fact that God, who is the Lord, gets to define love. And he actually shows us what love is like in the person of Jesus, that he takes on flesh and walks among us. And so when we look at Jesus, we actually get to see love with skin on, that any vision or definition of love that we have does not line up with the person of Jesus is wrong. And God's actually inviting us to see a more compelling vision for love in the person of Jesus. And so that's what this series is all about, the fact that love walked among us. And we as people, the way that we actually change and the way we actually grow is by beholding the beauty of Jesus, by seeing him with our hearts, seeing him with our eyes, being captivated by it, and following after him in the way that he does this. And so the point of the series is to look at Jesus and so that we can begin to love like he loved and walk like he walked. I... Um, I got to do a wedding yesterday. I've been doing, you know, it's wedding season. Weddings happen a lot. And I like doing weddings. More, increasingly, I like doing weddings more and more. And partly that's because I get to help people lower their expectations for marriage. And that's like, it's like part of, I get to, I get to be the, the bubble popper, you know. Um, and, and it kind of goes like this, is people will come up to me and they'll kind of small talk pastor me. You know, they're like, oh, you're a pastor. Ah, weddings, funerals. And I say, yeah, same thing. And they're like, what? And, and I... <laughs> And it's mostly for shock value, but then the more you think about it, it's true. You know, like there's forced time spent with extended family, right? Weddings and funerals. You eat some stuff, you laugh a little, you cry a little, you think about memories and what brought us here. You know, like so there's, weddings and funerals are pretty similar. And I tell that joke and people think, this guy's crazy, I'm not going to his church. And I'm like, that's okay, you know, and so, but I, I like getting to do, I like getting to do weddings and in particular because I do like to build that bridge, this reality that... Um, you know, there's even like in the ceremonies that we do in weddings where they'll have the two candles and they'll light the unity candle and then they blow out the other two candles like you just died. You know, like <laughs> you pinch the candle, the light is gone and now the two, you know, the two are gone and now there's one. And there's this reality that I, you know, people have a high view of weddings in our culture, which is weird. People will drop $30,000 for something that they don't believe in and they think is a man-made institution. And they have a high view of weddings, but they have a low view of marriages mostly. And a lot of that comes from our bad view of love. And I try to make the point in this reality that marriage, like any relationship or like any real part of love, is actually a thousand deaths. Like, this is how this works. Like you, you count the cost, you pay the price, you lay your life down, you choose to serve. The old you goes away, there's a new you. That, we, that when we really think about how relationships work, how love works, we know that love costs a lot. We know that to really make love work, it takes death. We know that. But functionally, we hate that. <laughs> love is a, a fair weather game for most people when I feel like it, until it's no longer convenient, when somehow I decide my desires no longer line up. And so that's why the vows in the marriage ceremony are such a big deal, because the vows are there for when you don't feel like it. You don't need to take vows for something you love to do. This is what this text is showing us here, that Jesus is willing to count the cost of love, and he's inviting us to do the same. 
As we talk through this Love Walked Among Us series, so much of what we talked about so far has been all pretty positive, uppity, nice things, right? Love sees you. Love is kind with you. Love tells you the truth. Love is gracious. And there's all this like positive love stuff. But this today and next week and even a little bit last week, we're kind of having to look really soberly at, but what about when love is mostly like death? And kind of the, the shiny, you know, positive, encouraging uppityness of being a loving person kind of goes away. And when stuff really gets hard, when the rubber really meets the road, are we a type of people who are willing to embrace the personal cost of love? Am I willing to die for the sake of love? Am I willing to die to myself? Am I willing to count the cost? So ultimately what we see in this text is that Jesus does count the cost, but we're going to see four things that are actually in this text about love. And so I want us to be sober as we look at this and think through our own lives of love, but also the fact that God loves us like this. He's not calling us to go and do something that he hasn't done for us and he's not doing to us. So let me pray for us and then I'll walk through this text and we'll see four things about love. Father, I pray that we'll see you in this text and we'll be compelled um, by how beautiful you are and how well you love us and then that would energize us to therefore go and love other people. In the name of your son we pray, amen. All right, so first thing, I'm gonna give some background to this text. The first thing we see is that four things about love. The first one is that God is love and here's what I mean by that. And so right in verse 11 we see this. Jesus says, I am the Good shepherd. Now, one of the things we need to notice when you're interpreting the Bible and generally just reading things is when you have a, an adjective describing a noun, Jesus isn't saying, I'm the only shepherd. He's saying, I'm a, I'm a different type of shepherd. He's building a contrast as though there are shepherds and then there are good shepherds. There are bad shepherds, evil shepherds, manipulative, oppressive shepherds, and then there is me, Jesus. I'm the singular good shepherd. There are no other good shepherds besides me. I am the good shepherd. And so you ask, who, what is he contrasting with? And this is one of the texts that I think is significant for us to look at if we consider who the person of Jesus is. Who is Jesus? Is he a good teacher? Is he just a human? Is he God? Did he kind of like come like a hologram and just float around and then like, you know, just kind of like pepper people with miracles and then hover around back? Or what really is the person of Jesus like? What's like his substance composed of? And this text actually gives us a window into this. Actually, um, in the Old Testament, there's a book called Ezekiel that was come from the the prophet Ezekiel talks about this. And he's actually speaking on behalf of God, um, confronting the bad shepherds of Israel, that there's these human rulers, these kings, these leaders, these authorities that are actually doing damage to God's people. They're doing damage to the people that God sent them to. Rather than being good shepherds who build up and encourage and move and lead, they're instead taking and using and, uh, uh, and, and oppressing these people in a way that is evil. And so God is threatening these bad shepherds saying, I'm gonna do something about this. And that's a bad place to be in is to be being threatened by God. God says this in Ezekiel 34, as I live, declares the Lord, Surely because my sheep have become a prey and my sheep have become food for all the wild beasts. Since there is no shepherd and because my shepherds have not searched for my sheep, but the shepherds have fed themselves and have not fed my sheep. God says, what am I gonna do about it? This is the reality. Is these shepherds are bad. They're not going looking for them. They're feeding themselves, not feeding the sheep. What am I gonna do? God says this. Thus says the Lord God, behold, I, I myself will search for my sheep and seek them out. 
I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep, and I myself will make them to lie down. So the Jewish people, the Israelites, are recognizing that they've had bad leader after bad leader after bad leader, oppressive person after oppressive person after oppressive person, false teacher after false teacher, and they're looking for and waiting for the time, like, when is God himself? When is Yahweh going to come and be our shepherd? When is this final good shepherd going to actually show up? Because God says, I will. And Jesus says here in John 10, 11, I am the good shepherd. I'm God. God told you a long time ago that he was gonna come and be your shepherd. Well, here I am. I'm God in the flesh. I'm here to be your shepherd. So the first thing we notice about Jesus in this context is that he's God. He is the God of the Old Testament. He is the God who promised to be the shepherd and he's now showing up delivering on his promises. Jesus is God. The second thing we see is actually also in the book of Ezekiel. He says this, and I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. Now, imagine, like, kind of imagine being a Jew who doesn't really know about Jesus yet, and you hear in the same paragraph God say, I will be their shepherd, they'll have one shepherd, and also I'm going to send a descendant of David, and he'll be their one shepherd. I can imagine reading this thinking, like, you're making no sense. Are there two shepherds or is there one shepherd? Which one is it? Is it a human, like descendant of David, or is it God himself in the flesh? And this would have created a lot of tension in the mind of the people hearing Ezekiel. But for us as Christians, we now can look in this text and Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. And he's both. He's fully God. He's fully man. He's a descendant of David. And he's Yahweh himself taking on flesh. That he is fulfilling both of these future promises in the book of Ezekiel. That no matter how bad all these bad shepherds have been, God is delivering on his promise that I'm going to show up and I'm going to do it. God has this moment where he goes, if you want something done right, you have to do it yourself. And he shows up and takes on flesh. And he lives a perfect life. And he teaches and he loves. He does not oppress. He builds up. He doesn't use his power for self-interest. He uses his power to build into and feed and develop the sheep. So the first thing we see about love in this text is that God is love. Jesus is God. He's showing us what love is like. He shows up. He doesn't lean out. Now, for a lot of us, we, I mean, not all of us, all of you are not second century or first century Jews. So, You're not worried about all those bad shepherds of Israel because you've never been led astray by them. But there's this reality that all of us on a regular basis deal with being led by bad shepherds. You know, think about our dominant culture and the way that we talk and think about progress and saviors in humanity. And even especially since the Industrial Revolution, technology has been this thing that's going to save us and lead us into the next season of life. And so in the Industrial Revolution, they're saying, now that we have all this technology, we don't need God. Nietzsche said God is dead. We don't need him because we're going to develop our own stuff and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And then what happens, technology develops so well that they just kill each other more effectively in the Civil War. So then the optimism goes down. But then... A couple decades pass, optimism goes back up. You know what? We are, world is getting better because our technology, our, our human ingenuity, we're going to make the world a better place. We're going to eradicate all these things. And then a couple decades go by and World War II happens. The bloodiest war in the history of the world. Technology is promising and it's actually not setting people free, it's actually oppressing people. And then, you know, we've, our, our chronic forgetfulness as humanity, you know, decades have passed, and now we're saying, you know, now technology is going to set us free. This time it's going to... 
And, you know, there's data coming out now that especially in kids ages 12 um, up through adults ages 27, um, there's been a 72% increase in chronic psychological distress in the last 15 years. And they're saying why psychologists now are being able to label it, it is because of chronic use of digital technology. I have a lot of friends. You know, I used to have an Apple Watch and it broke, so I'm off the hook on this, you know, so, but... <laughs> One of, the reasons, one of the ways that people convinced me to get an Apple Watch was, if you get an Apple Watch, then you won't look at your iPhone as much. So now, <laughs> technology is saving us from our technology. <laughs> you know, like, you know, my Apple Watch is broken, so now I'm addicted to my phone again. I wasn't for a while, but, but the sexual revolution told us uninhibited sexual expression is the way to the abundant life. Technological, consum- technological consumption is the way of the abundant life. Having more things, having more properties, doing whatever you feel like, not being connected to a family, be your own. See, Jesus is saying here, the thief came to still kill and destroy. I came that might have life and have it abundantly. There are lots of people trying to make lots of money off of you by getting you to believe that whatever they say is the abundant life is the abundant life. See, we don't get to decide whether we're sheep or not, but we do get to decide which shepherd we want to follow. And we have to really soberly think and ask ourselves, are the voices I'm listening to leading me into the abundant life or not into the abundant life? And also, what even is the abundant life? Because abundant life for the follower of Jesus has everything to do with this ability to lay your life down on behalf of others. The people that I know who are mature and healthy and have a strong sense of life fulfillment are not the people with more money in their bank and more toys in their driveway and more numbers on the flow chart and more and more and more. Those They're the people who have consistently for a long time been giving themselves away to other people sacrificially in love. So you don't just all of a sudden become a healthy, relationally connected person. You over time, progressively, one day at a time, one step at a time, give your life away to other people in a way that connects you and builds you up. See, the abundant life for the follower of Jesus, so God is love, love is like Jesus, You have to ask, the life that God chose to live in the flesh was the way of being misunderstood, betrayed, sacrificial, serving, and then tortured to death for the sake of loving other people. And we have to really ask ourselves, that's the life that God chose to live. That is the abundant life. Do I want that life, yes or no? Do I want the life of sacrificial love? Because we don't get to be followers of Jesus and decide to not want the life of sacrificial love. But do you see how beautiful this is, that Jesus wants to live this life for us? That he gets to do this. He says, the shepherd loves the sheep. I lay down my life for the sheep. He's not mad that the sheep need shepherding. Not at all. You know, I think uh, nicknames are kind of a big deal. 
You know, I don't know if you've, you might have had some really hurtful nicknames in your past. I had a variety of nicknames growing up. One, I was one of those good at school kids, you know, and so in fifth grade, I had a nickname for a while that was called Seth Nye, the boring guy. That's what my, you know, more sympathy, please. You know, like, yeah, oh, you know, like so hard. You know, I, you know, I processed through it. I'm doing fine, you know, and then... Then in, uh, some of you are like, mm, I see that, you know, that's fine, you know, that, that's fine, you know, and then, but then in high school, you know, there's this Quentin Tarantino movie came out, and um, there's this character in the movie called the Bear Jew, and um, I'm Jewish, and I was hairier than all my friends, so Bear Jew, that was my nickname, senior in high school, on the volleyball team, and you get these different nicknames, but how does it make you feel that one of God's favorite nicknames for you is Sheep? And what are sheep like? They're pretty dumb, right? <laughs> you know, they can't clean themselves. They walk around on their own feet. You know, I, one time I was in Slovakia and I saw a herd of sheep. And I, was, I was 18 at the time. And so me and a group of other 18-year-olds were like, let's go attack those sheep. <laughs> because <laughs> when you're 18, that's what you do. So we went running through the thing and we went and found and the sheep were dumb. They didn't do anything. You'd push on them and they just, like they're unresponsive. <laughs> You know, and we're a little bit like, what are these sheep doing out here? And there's like this shepherd guy, like on his phone, not paying attention, you know, and you're going, he didn't care, you know, so you're a sheep. How do you feel about that? You know, I think one of the problems we have as Christians is we feel all this shame about being a sheep, right? Some of you are conspiracy theorists, I think, you know. <laughs> Uh, but, you know, there's the sheep, you know, the mass media is turning people into sheep, and, you know, and you know, conspiracy theorists talk about the sheeple, you know, and they don't think for themselves, you know, and uh, it's a pretty negative word, pretty shameful word. He said, I'm a sheep. Uh, so we kind of have to be honest with ourselves. Like, how do we feel that, like, our Father in heaven, Jesus, God in the flesh, calls us sheep? And I think that one of the things we need to continue to work through as people is the fact that we're supposed to be sheep. We're supposed to be image bearers of God. We're supposed to be dependent on the Father. We're by design not autonomous individual people, but we rather are people who need to be led and loved by God the Father. And he's not mad about that. Like I think, you know, I see a lot of parents. You know, I'm not a parent, so takes a grain of salt, you know, but... I talk to pastors or parents or teachers, you know, parents who are mad that their children need to be parented. Pastors who are mad that their congregation needs to be led. Teachers that are mad that their students need to be taught. Jesus is not mad that his sheep need to be shepherded. It's a privilege to him. He loves his children, he loves his own. My sheep know me, there's an intimacy, and I know them. He's not up in heaven being like these sheep. Who, he, you know, oh, I, I created them to be sheep. <laughs> you know, this is my fault. <laughs> Do you feel like Jesus is mad that you're a sheep? That he, like there's this frustration with you? He's, he's a good shepherd. He delights in shepherding you. He's patient. He's leading you from your bad pasture into your greener pasture. This is a process that you're involved with with him. And I think we have to really honestly deal with our own sense of shame that we have, that we're sheep, that we're trying so hard to not need to be shepherded by God, that actually sometimes even our attempts to get mature in the faith are actually just ways of needing the Father less. 
trying to be independent from God. That's not the point. The more mature we are in our faith, the more peace we come to find in knowing that we're sheep and that God is our shepherd. Think about that in your life of people that you love. Are you annoyed that people in your life need to be shepherded? Are you annoyed that kids need to be parented? Are you annoyed that kids need, that students need to be taught? Are you annoyed that employees need to be managed? Are you annoyed, like, we all have these different arenas in our life where we're shepherds, leading responsible people, and I want us to view that as a privilege. I'm not saying it's all fairy tale and rosy, whatever, but I'm saying it's a privilege to get to shepherd people. It's a privilege to get to lead people. And God does delight in the fact that he leads us and guides us and he knows us and we know him. God is love. Love is like Jesus and love is a shepherd. Um, Are we a people interested in shepherding like Jesus shepherds? That's a question we need to ask. Second thing we see in here is that love is enduring. Uh, You know, I talk to a handful of people who every now and then like to say like, our marriage isn't really endearing, it's enduring. And I say, well... That's fine. I mean, if you have to, if, it, if it's either or, then whatever, you know, but I'd like to be both. But there's a reality that there's an endurance to love here. And here's the thing, is endurance is actually the test of whether you're a good shepherd or a bad shepherd. That's the test. Here's what goes on here. He says, the thief comes to only steal, kill, and destroy. Verse 12, he who is a hired hand is not a shepherd. I think about that guy over the flock in Slovakia who didn't care what we did to his sheep because he's probably just collecting the paycheck. He didn't know those sheep, and he just let these 18-year-olds terrorize his sheep, I guess. So who does not own the sheep? He doesn't own them. There's no sense of ownership. There's a sense of right now, temporariness, hand at a distance. They see the wolf coming and leave the sheep and flee, but the wolf snatches and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. See, Jesus is contrasting himself here saying, see, there's these bad shepherds and there's this good shepherd. I am not like the bad shepherds. I am the good shepherd. What we, the way we can tell the difference is the what happens when the wolves come. What happens when the pain comes? What happens when the cancer comes? What happens when the mental disability comes? What happens when the financial crash happens? What happens when the suffering comes? What happens when the wolves come? How we respond in that moment is how we know whether we're loving or not. Not when there's trending up, not when things are going well, but in the moments where it's hard. Because when things get hard, the hired hand, the bad shepherd, bails. I don't need this. But Jesus, the good shepherd, when things got real bad for us, dead in our trespasses and sins, he didn't bail and say, fix your own mess. He leaned in and got his hands messy. This is the hardest thing, because just imagine wolves attacking sheep and then sticking, you ever tried to break up a dog fight? You know, you get bit a lot of the time. You get, it's costly to you to get involved in other people's mess. A lot of times you'll try and love and serve people who are involved in a mess and you get mud on your face. You get not gratitude. You get, it hurts. And so we learn that it's safest to withdraw when the wolves come. Because when we don't withdraw, we get hurt. So we try and survive, we distance ourselves, we numb out somehow, whether it's through distance or through medication or through whatever it is, we numb out because I can't handle and someone's overfunctioning and we just want to get distance from them. But the good shepherd leans in, he doesn't lean out. 
So this is both an external thing and an internal thing, an ability or a willingness to really lean in and get hurt. And we know this most beautifully in the person of Jesus who took on flesh, suffered like we suffered, and leans in, and who does it cost the most? It costs him the most. It costs him his life. He didn't go out risking his life. He'd go out giving his life. We love and risk. He loves with certainty giving. Love and risk go hand in hand, that when you choose to love people, your life mostly will get harder. Mostly. A lot of times we think that I'm going to follow Jesus, he's going to make my life easier. And he will make your life abundant, but the abundant life is the way of the cross. Abundant life doesn't mean easier life, it mostly means the death to self. Here's what C.S. Lewis says about love and risk. Um, He says this, to love it all is to be vulnerable. Love anything in your heart will certainly be wrung and possibly be broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give your heart to no one, not even to an animal. Wrap it carefully round with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. I know there's people in this room who you've been hurt so bad by your decision to love. So bad. Total betrayal. And there's that part of you that's going, will I ever be able to love again? Because you're scared. It takes risk. Some of you have been hurt in little ways. We need, to be on, we, we need to be able to honestly grieve and deal with the ways that we've had our hearts broken. But at the same time, we also need to take courageous steps forward and risk being hurt again for the sake of love. Because if your goal is to be safe, you will not love. If your goal is to never get hurt, you will not love. Next part we see here on, um, on this is how love is particular. You know, one of the things that is interesting about weddings is all the people who come up to you after they've been enjoying the reception a lot, you know, and they'll, they'll start telling you stuff, you know, like, oh, man, I just don't think I could ever get married, you know, because I just love women too much. And you go, like, First of all, I don't even know you. I don't know what you're talking to me about. Second of all, like, you know that like, everyone hears that and you go, this guy does not love women. He loves himself and he uses women, right? That's clear. We know that. But why, why is that? Because sometimes we, we, we know that love does not actually work when it's just general. Love isn't a broad brush thing. You don't get to say, I love people. That's not how it works. You don't say, I love women. That's not how it works. You don't say, I, I've talked to people all the time. Not all the time, a couple of times. And they'll say things like, I'm a people person. And then you see them interact with people and you're like, no, you're not. <laughs> see, because love, all that really matters is how you treat that one person at a time. You don't love people if you love women and don't love your wife. You don't get to just decide and apply to yourself a broad general labor. Rather, love is absolutely particular. 
I don't think anybody should have the goal of being a more loving person generally. I think we should have the goal of, am I loving the particular people that God has in my life better? See, love is particular. Jesus says this here in John 10, 14 through 16. He says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. This is one of the key texts that I would say is, um, is central to a doctrine of particular atonement or of definite atonement, meaning Jesus goes to the cross to love and sacrifice and certainly save particular people. He's not just dying for people, but he's dying for persons. He's dying for sheep. He's dying for certain people he is saving, that he's not going to the cross hoping that some people might get saved. He's going to the cross certainly saving his people. Jesus does not, at the end, dying on the cross, say, it is begun, or now I hope they choose me back. He dies on the cross and says, it is finished. It is a definite, particular act of love that Jesus has. He says, I'm the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, I lay down my life for the sheep. Named individuals in a community he's laying his life down for. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold, meaning there are people who don't even yet know that they're my sheep. And I'm dying for them. And I have them. I don't maybe have them. I don't hopefully have them. I don't wish I have them. I have them. They're mine. The Father has given them to me. That I lay down my life for those sheep. And these other sheep that I have, they're not of this fold. I will bring them in also. They will hear my voice. That the act of crucifixion, of atonement, of Jesus absorbing the wrath of God that belonged on us into himself is a particular act of love. Do you believe that your faith is what makes you saved? Because that's not true. It's Jesus' blood that makes you saved. And it's actually your faith, which is trusting in his blood, that connects you to him relationally. That we're not saved by anything in us, but we're saved by everything that's in Jesus. We don't add to it. We don't take away from it. We can't make it more. We can't make it less. We can only begin to in a bigger and more powerful way, acknowledge its significance for us, that not a single blood of Jesus was wasted. Every single one of it perfectly accomplished salvation for his people. That he went and sought after a bride and he purchased her in full. And there is no buyer's remorse. What are some of the ways that you feel like you're loving too generally and not loving particularly enough? One of the ways that psychologists will talk about this is differentiation, meaning um, this inward sense of guilt or shame that I have to be responsible for other people's emotions all the time. I'm unable to let people down. I'm unable to disappoint them. So I say yes to everyone. See, a lot of times people think that being a loving person means becoming a doormat. Yes or no, sir. Yes or no, sir. Yes or no, sir. And that's how it works. But that's not how it works in Jesus. He says this in verse 18. No one takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This is the charge I received from my Father. Jesus is so connected to the fact that the Father has sent him for a purpose, that the Father loves him unconditionally, that he is not about managing other people's disappointment. He's about doing what he's supposed to do. 
that he's well differentiated. He's not serving people to manage his own sense of guilt or shame, but rather he's serving people because the Father has called him to. I think a lot of times, we who have boundary problems and just chronically say yes and can never say no, a lot of that is because we're trying to make ourselves feel better about ourselves. My act of service is not really about loving you, it's about my self-esteem project. My act of service is not really about loving you, it's about trying to get you to love me. Jesus is not encumbered by this. He is loved by the Father, and that gives him the freedom to disappoint people and tell them no. This happens just one chapter earlier, or two chapters earlier, in John chapter 7. It says, his brothers said to him, we should go up to Judea and do this thing that would be a really strategic ministry move. And Jesus just says, no. (laughs) Jesus disappoints his family because he's trying to please his father, not his family. The strength that we will have to be able to have boundaries, to say no, to not become doormats, will come from our own sense of connectedness to the Father, that I don't need to do this. I'm not just doing this to manage my own guilt or make you feel better, but I'm loving you as a a way that I am actually honoring the Father in heaven. See, this is what happens, is when we try to love too generally, we fail to love particularly. Some of us probably in this room We try to love too generally. We say yes to too many things. We're at the church too much. We're working too many hours. And in doing so, trying to love as generally as possible, we're failing to love the particular people that God has given us to love. At home, our neighbors, people that are in our circle. That when you try to make love too general, you will sacrifice your love of particular people. Sometimes workaholism, sometimes over-serving at church. Sometimes these things aren't just a matter of being driven. Sometimes they're a matter of poor boundaries. It's not loving particularly. It's trying to love generally. I'm just trying to make the point here that love is not general. It's always particular. And when you try to make love general, you'll compromise loving the people that only you can love. There are some people that only you can love like you can love. We have to be able to trust the Father knowing I'm called to love these people and somebody else is gonna to need to sacrificially love them because I can't sacrificially love everybody or I'll die and everyone will, like I'll actually love nobody. Who are some of the people that God has particularly called you to be an agent of his love to? Who are the people you're called a shepherd to lay your life down for? Because you can't lay your life down for all the people in this room. That can't happen. You can't do it. I, one of the things that people will talk about in the membership interviews or even when me, new people come in is I, I'll ask this question, what are you nervous about in going into the new building? And one of the main things that will happen is, well, we're just, we're just gonna be a big mega church and people aren't gonna be seen, people aren't gonna be connected, and it's just gonna be this real thin thing. I said, yeah, maybe that might happen. <laughs> because we don't get to have a loving culture unless each one of us shows up and loves people in the chairs every single Sunday, right? We'll only have an unloving culture if all of us stop particularly loving people, being hospitable and seeing people and being connected to people and being curious with people one person at a time in these chairs and in that lobby. That's what makes us a loving, healthy church is not a pastor up here loving everybody generally, but all these individuals loving particular people particularly. That's the essence of love. 
And here's the last one here, is that love is sober, clear thinking. Jesus says this four times in this text. I lay my life down for the sheep. 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 He knows what's coming. He knows what his call is. He knows it's gonna be suffering. He knows it's gonna be uncomfortable. He knows it's gonna cost him a lot. He knows it's gonna be a big deal. And he's preparing himself for what it's going to be. And we, as a church, really need, in this Love Walked Among Us series, really need to soberly think about the cost to us if we decide to become people who love like Jesus. Because it can be just all positive, encouraging uppityness that's thin, and we can all be caught off guard by, man, I'm laying my down life down for these people, and they're just not loving me back. What did you expect was going to happen? Death feels like death. Suffering feels like suffering. Laying your life down feels like laying your life down. That we have to ask, do we want to actually love people like Jesus loved people? Are we going to do it freely or a way of managing our own guilt? And I want us to count the cost and think clearly about do we want to be people who are okay with being betrayed, being denied, being misunderstood, being hurt for the sake of love? Are we okay with that? Because we have to, on the front end, be sober about what it's going to take for us to be a loving people. Otherwise, we'll get into people with these poor expectations and we'll be caught off guard by their, their lack of gratitude. We'll be caught off guard by their difficulty or, and we'll get bitter. We'll withdraw. We'll pull back. We'll harden up. You know, this, this whole idea of buyer's remorse, you know, I, I do think that a lot of us in this room feel like Jesus was kind of bummed that you're what he got. <laughs> with his blood. And I feel like this all the time, you know, you're gonna buy this new shoe, oh, these shoes, these are gonna change my life. You know, this will really drastically improve my quality of life when I have these shoes versus those shoes. You know, this car will transform my seven minute commute. You know, uh, this, this little piece of technology, this is gonna set me, and we have all this, this happens in a consumer culture is this little thing I'm gonna buy is gonna, and you get it and it sucks and it's not what you want it to be. And I feel like we think that, we do think that Jesus thinks that about us sometimes. I spent blood on this. But Jesus was sober. He knew what he's getting himself into. He's not mad that sheep are sheep. He's not mad that you are the way you are, but he looks down on us and is grateful to have us and loves us and willingly, particularly, lay down his life for us. And I think some of you just need to hear very clearly that Jesus does not have buyer's remorse over you, that he wanted you that it's a basic product of economics, that the price paid is the value of the item. And if the price paid for you is blood of Jesus, then that means that in the eyes of Jesus, the Father and the Spirit, you're very valuable. That he didn't pay too high a price, he didn't pay too low a price, he paid just the right price, and it was love. It was the death of his son. And Jesus loves you, and he loves me, and he's not sad that he has to. This reality here that Jesus says, no one takes my life from me, I lay it down my own accord. There's a reality that Jesus did not have to die for you. You ever thought about that? That would have been fair. That would have been just if Jesus said, nope, not dying for them, not being a savior. We're not entitled to salvation. We're not entitled for Jesus to lay his life down. But he still anyway, I willingly lay my life down.
He didn't have to. He wanted to because of love. And I want us to be the type of people who both recognize that Jesus didn't have to, but he wanted to, so we're secure, that I'm connected to the Father by love, so I can risk being hurt because I'm loved by the Father, but also the type of people who look at others and say, I don't have to, but I want to. I'm gonna sacrificially love people, not just manage my own guilt, not just to just make them like me more, but because I want to be an agent of God's love to that person. This is what love is like, and I want us to, this is beautiful, this is compelling stuff, the fact that God would love us like this, and I want us to be a place that love others like that as well. Let's pray together. God, I'm so grateful that you have made us sheep, that we are regularly reminded of our inability apart from you. I pray that we wouldn't hate the fact that we're sheep, but we'd be grateful for the fact that we have a shepherd like you. God, help us not feel entitled to your love, but help us be grateful for it. I pray that even in taking communion in these next couple moments that we will grow in gratitude. Um, Father, thank you for sending the Son, for showing us what love is like. Help us walk after him well. In the name of your Son, we pray. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Seth.